Welcome to Prima's 2020 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Amanda Franklin will discuss protecting public entities and public-private partnerships. Amanda is the Director of Risk Management at Wheaton College. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Amanda. What are public-private partnerships and what sorts of projects normally utilize them? So public-private partnerships are basically just what they sound like. They are an agreement between a public entity and a private entity or multiple parties of each type to work together to accomplish a specific project. In this era of aging infrastructure and smaller government budgets, they've become a popular vehicle for accomplishing projects that would not otherwise happen And it can also be a vehicle for avoiding government procurement hurdles that would otherwise be a barrier to such projects. They're especially popular when new construction is involved or if the project to be accomplished will last for a long term. Public-private partnerships, which are also called either 3Ps or P3s, are often used to build new buildings and roads. They're often seen in toll roads, prisons, and university housing developments. They're also very common in the public housing arena and can extend to such areas as hotels, parks, and charter schools. Basically, anything a public entity needs to do can be accomplished through a public-private partnership if the entity so chooses. The National Council for Public-Private Partnerships further explains the P3 relationship by saying that, in addition to the sharing of resources, each party shares the risks and rewards potential in the delivery of the service or facility. Of course, our focus here is particularly on sharing and allocating the risks involved in achieving those rewards in a manner that best protects the public entity partner. Who are the parties involved and what are the relationships in a public-private partnership? So the relationships between the parties in a public-private partnership can be as broad and diverse as the project the P3 is accomplishing. As I said earlier, there's usually at least one private and one public partner, but there can be multiples of either party. The public entity can build a project that the private entity then manages, which is common with prisons and toll roads, or the relationship can be exactly the opposite, where the private party builds the project and the public entity manages it. Sometimes the relationship is more complicated and there's a lease involved, either public land that's leased to a private party to build and operate the project on, or a private facility that's leased to a governmental entity to collect fees for operation. Oftentimes, the main public and private entities will have to create separate legal entities to accomplish the different purposes associated with the public-private partnership, such as one entity that owns the property, one that leases it, and another that operates it. We'll talk about some of the complexities that creates in a minute, but there can be so many legal entities and contracts involved that it requires a diagram and it makes your head spin. There's two main reasons why a private partner is brought in to complete a public-private partnership. The first is usually some sort of expertise. We see this a lot of times in charter schools or prisons where the private partner brings some sort of specialized skill or experience to the table that the public entity doesn't have, and they use that expertise to help the public entity carry out one of their governmental functions. The second reason, which in many instances gives rise to the first, is that the private party has the financial means to accomplish the project that the public entity does not. So they're brought in as a funding mechanism, whether they'll be behind the scenes or actually involved in the operations of the project. As a return for this financial capital, the private party will usually be given the opportunity to benefit financially from the public-private partnership, whether that's in the form of tax credits or otherwise, so it's like an investment for them. It's also important to remember that because of these two factors, the private partner is usually much more experienced in the process of entering into and developing public-private partnerships, and therefore they can be better at trying to get their way done. Do public-private partnerships have governmental immunity protection? So to clarify, 
clarify, what we're talking about here is the protections that most public entities have under state law with regard to what a public entity can be sued for, when and where they can be sued, and ultimately how much the public entity can be held liable for in terms of damages. Even though these limitations vary from state to state and they don't apply to federal law claims, they're still important safeguards for public dollars. Much like the immunity protections themselves, whether these protections apply to public-private partnerships will also be a function of individual state laws. It will also depend on the nature of the particular public-private partnership being undertaken. In most states, in order for something to have governmental immunity protection, it has to be owned by the public entity. That means you may have two seemingly identical operations, even side-by-side -side buildings, one of which is owned and run purely by a public entity, and one which is a public-private partnership owned by a private entity, and even though they look the same, one has governmental immunity protection and one does not. That means not only that one may have tort caps and one does not, but there may also be protections that the publicly owned project has in terms of requiring actual or constructive notice in order to prove liability in the first place that the private entity does not similarly enjoy. It's important to note that in most states, this lack of immunity protection applies even if the private entity that owns the project is one of those entities created by the public entity like we discussed earlier. For example, in many instances, the federal government requires that federal funds be distributed to a nonprofit entity rather than a governmental entity. So in order to receive these funds, the governmental entity will create a nonprofit that's eligible to receive and distribute the funds. It's important to note here that even if the nonprofit has the same board members as the public entity, does similar work to the public entity, and deals with the same people as the public entity, it is ultimately a separate private entity, not public. It's one of those few instances where even though something looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's not a duck. There are some states that will extend immunity protection to such entities if the private entity is essentially acting as a subsidiary of the public entity to accomplish a governmental function, but the general rule is that such privately owned entities are not entitled to any of the state law immunity protections. Again, this is going to be a function of individual state laws. You need to keep in mind that in most states, the laws and the court cases have not caught up to the business of public-private partnerships which is still evolving and subject to interpretation. Another important consideration about the lack of immunity is that it can affect the availability and price of insurance coverage. Because of immunity protections, public entities are generally viewed as good insurable risks for insurance carriers because their maximum exposure is known ahead of time, so the carriers consider this a better insurable risk and offer better rates. Privately owned entities, however, including those in public-private partnerships, don't have these protections, even if they're doing the same work, so it can be harder and more expensive to insure. Also, under most state laws, privately owned entities, including those owned by private entities established by governmental entities, are not allowed to be members of public entity risk or insurance pools. That means that such privately owned entities usually have to purchase insurance coverage individually or as part of a much smaller group that doesn't enjoy immunity protection, which again leads to much higher insurance rates. Further, because the private entities don't have the immunity protection and the tort caps like we just talked about, it's possible that they could have significantly larger judgments and claims against them than a public entity doing the same work would have, so this will in turn increase the private entity's loss ratios and possibly increase their cost of insurance even more. It's just something else to think about in the overall consideration of whether and how to proceed with a public-private partnership. Again, these arrangements usually appear to offer cost savings up front, but if you look at some of the costs long-term, sometimes the numbers make as much sense because it's not a straight apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Are there specific contract considerations that should be in place when creating a public-private partnership? The main thing to remember is that the contracts, and there may be a lot of them, which create a public-private partnership are just like any other contract that a public entity enters into. The difference is that in most cases, the public entity is the big dog in the fight, and they can impose their requirements on the other party to the contract without much pushback or even question. 
However, as we discussed earlier, in a public-private partnership, the private party usually has the upper hand, either because of their expertise they bring to the situation or, more often, their money, so they can try to impose their will on the public entity in the contracting process. Again, as much as you can, try to treat this like any other contract in terms of your requirements, expecting, of course, that there may be a little more politics in play than usual. That means that at a minimum, you're going to require that the other parties have specific applicable insurance coverage, that they provide you a waiver of subrogation, an additional insured status for both ongoing and completed operations for that coverage, that their coverage is primary with regards to their work, and that they indemnify you for claims arising out of their operations. When coming up with specific contract conditions, you need to consider the type of project being done and the inherent risks involved with it. If there's construction involved in the project, you may need to require builder's risk insurance and professional liability insurance for the architects and design professionals. In that case, you need to determine who will provide the insurance and what limits should be required. Also, who's going to be responsible for ensuring the project when it's complete, both from a liability perspective and on their property schedule. This may go back to the ownership question that we discussed earlier, because the public entity may be legally prohibited from ensuring the project if it's privately owned. If the project involves ongoing operations after construction is completed, you may need to have different requirements for the ongoing operations phase than the construction phase. Oftentimes, the construction and operations agreements are developed at the same time at the beginning of the partnership. And it's important that you don't get so caught up in the construction aspect that you miss the part that may actually last longer and impose more liability. Again, your coverage and limit requirements need to correspond to the exposure of the particular project. At a minimum, you'll need to require appropriate limits of general liability insurance, possibly auto coverage, and depending on the employment situation, as we'll discuss in a little bit, maybe workers' compensation insurance. You'll need to require waivers of subrogation and additional insured provisions for both ongoing and completed operations as appropriate on each coverage. Remember, private partners are generally joining this partnership to make money, so they like the security that comes with transferring risk to insurance as much as possible. And it behooves them as well as your public entity to get proper insurance requirements in place that protect everyone. But you might have to arrange force that concept to them during the contract process. What are some things public entities should look out for from a risk management perspective in public-private partnerships? One of the most important considerations is who will be responsible for which operations of the public-private partnership. As with any contract, it's best if the party that is in the best position to control the risk from a factual standpoint is also the party that's responsible for the risk from a legal standpoint. That means that if the private party is running everything, they should indemnify your public entity for their negligence or fault, and they should be required to carry insurance to back up that indemnification requirement. However, be very cautious in this area as private parties in a P3 will often attempt to force the public entity to indemnify the private party for the private party's negligence. And if risk management is not involved in the process early on or at all, public entities can sign contracts agreeing to this without even knowing what they're doing. In addition to being against the law in many states, this can lead to lack of safety and risk management practices and expose the public entity to liability that they did not create. Again, remember that the private entity often has the upper hand in these arrangements and will be looking to protect themselves, not your public entity. Here's a real-life example of the difference that indemnifications can make based on some reported legal cases. You may not know that Central Park in New York City is actually a public-private partnership between the City of New York and a private entity called the Central Park Conservancy. The agreement that establishes the Central Park Public-Private Partnership requires the Central Park Conservancy to provide maintenance services to the reasonable satisfaction of the city and also requires the city to indemnify the conservancy from all liabilities arising from all services performed and activities conducted by the conservancy. There was a claim involving a three-year-old boy who fractured his elbow by tripping on cobblestones, which were supposed to be maintained by the conservancy. The claim ended up costing $1.5 million. Because of the indemnification provision, which exists because under the law, the city has a non-delegable duty to maintain streets and parks, the city is on the hook for damages that not only were they not responsible for, 
but that actually should have been the responsibility of the private party. In contrast, Ottawa Park in New Orleans is also a public-private partnership that's run by the Private Ottoman Park Commission. So when there was a similar claim against the city of New Orleans involving an injury in the park and the city was named in the suit, the city was able to get out prior to judgment because the plaintiff had no right to relief against the city and the city was not required to indemnify the park commission. Also, due to the partnership nature of public-private partnerships, oftentimes it's not cut and dried that one party is doing all or nothing. Oftentimes the private partner will manage one aspect of operations, maybe in a new or unique area, while the public partner manages another aspect in a more traditional public sphere. Now, often these distinct operations are carried out in different parts of the facility. Obviously, this can create confusion as to who's responsible for what. Work with your legal counsel to spell out exactly what each party is responsible for doing and to make sure that they're required to indemnify the other parties for claims arising out of these responsibilities. If different parties will have unique duties in different programs or in different parts of the building, make sure that's clear in the agreement. Be sure to specify who's responsible for maintenance and repairs and for inspecting for the need for them. Does this follow the owner of the building? Does it follow the party in charge of operations? Again, it all needs to be specified in your contract. Another important consideration is the employees will be working on the public-private partnership. Are they public employees, private employees, shared employees, or some combination thereof? Who's responsible for directing their employees' actions and ultimately for accepting responsibility for them? Whose policies are going to be followed? Who's responsible for workers' compensation? Make sure all of this is spelled out in the public-private partnership contracts, especially if there are multiple entities involved. It's also important, not just in the partnership contracts, but throughout the partnership itself, to focus not only on risk transfer through these insurance requirements and identification, but also on the reduction of risk. This includes robust safety and risk management programs throughout the life of the project, as well as continued involvement by all parties to the partnership. Because you deal with this all the time, public entities are usually very skilled and experienced in this area. You can implement many of the same risk management practices that you utilize in the public entity sphere as part of the public-private partnership. Reducing risk for all partners will ultimately reduce the risk and cost of the public entity, including the reputational risk involved for your entity. How can public risk managers best protect their entity that is considering a public-private partnership? The main thing that risk managers can do is to make sure that risk management is involved in the project and in the contract process as soon as possible, preferably from the very beginning as soon as you start discussing the possibility of a public-private partnership. That may sound obvious, but I've worked on major multi-million dollar public-private partnership projects where the parties do not understand or want risk management to be involved. I've also read multi-hundred page documents relating to a single public-private partnership where insurance is not mentioned even once. There's often a push in public-private partnerships to just get the deal done up front and to worry about the details later, which we all know in risk management is a recipe for disaster. Ideally, if you get involved from the time the project is just starting to get discussed, you can bring up some of the issues we've discussed today and address them in the planning stages. For example, you could work with your legal counsel to structure the partnership so the public entity maintains ownership of the property and therefore retains immunity protections and the resulting insurance cost benefits that we discussed earlier. That may not be possible in every instance, but it may be worth exploring in some. Regardless of whether you're able to get such significant changes early on in the process, it's essential that the risk manager is involved in the review, if not the drafting, of the public-private partnership contracts. If you already have a policy in your entity that all new contracts and projects have to have risk management sign-off, make sure it's clear that P3s are no exception. And if you don't already have such a policy, a public-private partnership is a great place to start one because of the complexities inherent in such an arrangement. Make sure you're being clear that you're not trying to be an obstructionist to the project, but you're just trying to protect your entity in the best way possible. Risk managers have the great quality of being able to see the big picture and spot risks and challenges that other people who don't do this day in and day out might miss. So you're a valuable asset to your entity. 
You also have great experience with implementing safety culture and programs that help reduce overall risk that can be invaluable in a public-private partnership. Don't lose sight of the fact that even though the private party to the partnership may have more bargaining power than the other contractors you deal with on a daily basis, your entity is still a big dog in this fight and has interests that are necessary and worthy of protecting. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.